Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Welcome to DebtWire's The Muni Lowdown on Tuesday, April 21st. My name is Young Lim. I'm the host. And today we've got two, uh, we have one reporter and our head of municipal research talking about two different stories. First off, we have DebtWire Municipalist Chuck Stanley in Washington, D.C., who discusses how for CCRCs, continuing care retirement communities that are highly reliant on new residents for liquidity, a prolonged interruption in marketing activity could result in quickly deteriorating cash situations. And secondly, we have DebtWire's head of municipal research, Greg Clark, and he'll be talking about some important credit, credit characteristics of private colleges and universities rated by S&P Global Ratings in the triple B range, meaning triple B plus, triple B, and triple B minus. And given this, given this credit environment, he will also introduce the DebtWire Municipal's Ratings Tracker, which presents all municipal bond rating actions taken by Moody's, S&P Global Ratings, and Fitch over the past week. All right. Good morning, Chuck Stanley in Washington, D.C. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Not bad. Uh, waiting for the Rugrats to come in and guest host one of these days, but, you know, still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully you're not picking up too much of the uh, cartoon noise in the background. Uh, not yet, but I'll, we'll let you know when it gets that too much. So uh, I know today, Chuck, you'll be talking about how the COVID-19 outbreak is affecting continuing care retirement communities, that's a mouthful, marketing activities, and how that could ultimately impact liquidity at some of these facilities. Now, uh, first off, Chuck, before you begin speaking, can you tell us a little bit about how what we're talking about when we refer to continuing care retirement communities? And uh, as a lot of people know, they're commonly known as CCRCs. There's been a lot of news lately about COVID outbreaks at nursing homes, but these aren't necessarily the same thing, correct? Right, and I think that's an important distinction. Uh, when we talk about CCRCs, we're talking about senior living facilities that offer multiple levels of care. So that's from independent living to, uh, to sort of ongoing continuous medical care that you'd see at a traditional nursing home. So most residents come into these communities through the independent living component. That's basically just an apartment community specifically for senior residents, or in some cases, attached or standalone houses. Uh, they have trained staff and services specifically for the needs of senior clientele, but the residents are living their day-to-day -day lives on their own. Then for individuals who require more care, they might move to an on-site assisted living facility where staff provide physical help with mobility or administering medication, basic things like that. And then the highest level of care will be skilled nursing where the service are more in line with what you'd expect from a traditional nursing a nursing home, really 24-hour medical care. And in that last case, you're going to have a much higher level of direct interpersonal contact with medical staff, and the patients that are there are there because they have some sort of ongoing health issue, which from what we know seems to have a really strong correlation with the more severe cases of COVID. Great. Thanks, Chuck. That's very, very helpful. And this week, you looked at how the coronavirus outbreak is likely to create cash problems on the independent living side of that equation, correct? Exactly. 
So this sector is going to face challenges on multiple fronts, but one of the more immediate concerns when it comes to day-to-day -day operations is the fact that they can't really market to new residents right now in any direct way because they have to operate under very severe limitations for on-site visits and personal contact in order to protect their high-risk populations from transmission of the virus. And that's problematic because the business model for CCRCs really depends on an inflow of new residents just to maintain sufficient levels of cash on hand. Now, obviously, any business is going to rely on, to some degree, on growing its clientele in order to continue operating. But could you explain why this is such an important issue for CCRCs? That's a really good point. When we're talking about finances for CCRCs, I think it's important to understand the fact that entrance fees have a really important role in the facility's cash situation. Most of these facilities charge a large upfront entrance fee to new residents, and that fee guarantees access to the higher and more costly levels of care offered by the facility should they ultimately need them. But a significant portion of that fee is refundable. So once somebody vacates their unit, there's usually a set time period where the facility has to deliver that refundable portion either to the resident or their family. And those refunds can take a big chunk off of a facility's cash uh, balance sheet if they're not offset by incoming fees from new residents, especially if there are multiple refunds that come due in a short time span. Okay, so as, as you mentioned, these refunds come, come due. It's, it sounds like it's really important for these communities to get new entries coming in not, just to replace the outgoing cash. Right, and we've seen CCRCs in normal times miss liquidity covenants largely because of just unfortunate timing of these entrance fee flows, even in cases where their overall occupancy numbers are pretty strong. But with the outbreak of COVID-19, CCRCs have had to suspend the marketing practices that they use during normal times to bring in new residents. Uh, those are mostly entirely about bringing seniors on site and building their ties to community. So that means community events, on-site tours, things like that. Because seniors are at such high risk for coronavirus, most CCRCs we've heard from have essentially locked down their facilities except for essential, essential staff functions and visitations that are medically necessary. And that means in most cases, people aren't moving in right now, but they're also not able to build a pipeline for the future. I mean, I don't think most people would sign a lease on an apartment without seeing it in person at least once, let alone fork over a six-figure entrance fee. Right. And... I could see how that could become a problem very quickly, especially for communities that might happen to have a number of these refunds coming due soon. That's right. And we've already seen that at least one facility in the suburbs outside of New York, uh, the Amsterdam at Harborside in Long Island stopped making monthly payments to a fund for debt service in April because they're expecting to see a lot of their cash available for operations eaten up by refunds that are coming due in the next four months or three months. In the case of this particular facility, they have $4.5 million in refunds coming due between now and the end of June, and that's about half of their debt service reserves, just for perspective. Wow, half of their reserves. Okay, Chuck, I got one last question for you. That seems like a situation that could become untenable very, really quickly. Is there anything CCRCs are doing to address this? Well, a lot of communities are providing virtual tours of their facilities online, and they're stopped stepping up outreach by phone and mail. I've even heard of some facilities that are having staff deliver food or other supplies to seniors in the area, both as kind of a charitable service, but also to maintain ties with uh, the seniors in their community. But I think a lot of facilities are gonna run into trouble eventually if they can't find some way to bring visitors on site without 
risking the health of uh, their residents or raising concerns about, you know, their safety, which is going to be a huge deal for anybody living in these communities. Exactly. And that's paramount. Safety is the number one concern. I know you just mentioned virtual tours at the nursing homes and CCRCs, but I know in, in New Jersey, open home uh, for real estate brokers, open houses are are banned for now. And basically everyone's going virtual. I mean, it's not the same thing, but that's the only way you could get a peek inside someone's house, getting a virtual tour. So that must be the way to go these days. Exactly. And in cases with CCRCs, where one of the things you're going to be concerned about is sort of the attentiveness, you know, maybe um, efforts to keep facilities sterile and cleaning, that's, that's something you're really going to have to see in person. Exactly. Exactly. All right, Chuck Stanley in, in Washington, D.C., thank you so much for your time. Uh, stay safe out there with your family and take care of those rugrats. And there's always an invitation to bring them back in anytime. Thanks. I'll let them take most of the uh, most of the talking next time. It'll be more entertaining. Okay. Take care, Chuck. Thanks. All right. Thanks, John. Have a good one. Bye. And here we have Greg Clark from Summers, New York. Greg Clark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Young. How are you doing today? I'm okay. How are things up there? Good. All right. Uh, we're going to talk about a report you did uh, recently, but let's talk about a, br a brand new product that you're um, going to introduce to our audience. Tell us more about this new research publication. Well, with this much economic turmoil going on, we thought, we thought it would be useful to inform our subscribers on a weekly basis of rating changes by uh, the big three rating agencies, Moody's, S&P, and Fitch. In the first week we did this, of, there were 27 rating actions taken by the three rating agencies combined. 17 were downgrades, two were upgrades, and eight, and eight were outlook changes. Most of the actions were for revenue bonds and uh, nine of them were for GO bonds. So whenever we start with a new publication, we never quite know how interested in it our readers will be, but the ratings tracker in the, in the two weeks it's been out has been one of our most read articles. Their publications. The reason for this, I think, is that there's so much information that people need to digest. And as we all know, there's still no more than 24 hours in a day. And reports like this are one way we help our readers save time and quickly access uh, some, inf some important information. That's very interesting. And yes, you're right. It was like number one, almost number one with a bullet. It went racing right up the, the charts there, Greg. So nice Yeah, job. it was just kind of like the Beatles were. <laughs> for those millennials who don't know beatles were a famous british band but we, we won't go that far uh, they gotta they gotta know who the beatles are <laughs> my kids well i know but anyway that's a whole different topic um let's go back to um let's talk about the other report that came out last week which was on private higher education tell us more about that one. Oh, before i get too far into it let me uh give some background. Most of our readers, or excuse me, listeners will know this, but for those who don't, there's basically three types of schools in the U.S. There's public schools, and I'll use, uh, since I live in New York State, I'll use uh, the State University of New York uh, system as an example. They have universities, colleges, uh, community colleges all throughout the state. There's private not-for-profit schools, and in New York, those would include Columbia, Syracuse, and Cornell. And then there's private for-profit schools, 
<clears throat> excuse me, and the University of Phoenix is probably the best known of these, but they don't issue municipal bonds, so we don't follow them. Uh, public schools are not without risk, but because they get operating funds directly from their home state, they're less at risk than private not-for-profit schools, which I'll call private from now on because we're not even going to talk about private for-profit. Um, so that's the that's the setup of the industry in the U.S. Right, and as most of our listeners know, <clears throat> excuse me, higher higher education in general has been under some pressure in recent years. Is that correct? Yeah, as uh, as people know, uh, colleges and universities are unlike many other sectors of the muni market in that they compete directly for customers. In other words, mm -hmm. students and their parents. Uh, I guess it's always a toss-up whether the student or the parent makes the final decision, but hopefully they're all involved in that. And, of course, private schools face additional challenges due to the higher costs that they charge compared to public schools. And even before, so you put all this together, even before the outbreak of the coronavirus, higher ed was under investor scrutiny for several reasons, among them unfavorable demographic trends. There is a report from the uh, Chronicle of Higher Education in November of last year indicating that, quote, the pool of students likely to attend college is projected to rapidly decrease, end quote. And then you have COVID-19, as we said, and the near certainty of a recession, and that's going to prompt some students to avoid higher-priced private schools in favor of less expensive public schools. Uh, another article in the Chronicle of Higher Ed, I used them a lot in preparing this report, as you can tell, referenced a survey of college presidents. This was just in the last month or so, in which 36% of the college presidents who responded expected a serious disruption this September to on-campus operations. 70% of those officials expect revenue declines of at least 10%, and 84% of them anticipate enrollment declines. Uh, under the, uh, the CARES Act, which is the full name, Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, higher ed will get 14 0.3 billion dollars, but that's most people think, and, and I'm and I agree with this. Most people think that that amount will be. Uh, it's unlikely that that amount will be enough to stabilize that this part of the economy. So you put all this together, and uh, this prompted us to take a look at some important credit characteristics of private colleges, universities, rated by S and P in the triple B range, which means triple B plus flat triple B and triple B minus. So we limited the number of schools we reviewed to those with $50 million or more in debt. And we also excluded schools for which we could not find relevant data. And there were quite a few of those. Uh, I'm guessing because these schools issue bonds maybe once every five or 10 years. Uh, some of them anyway, issue that very infrequently and they're not attuned to the need for investor relations because they're not going to turn out in the market on a regular basis. So uh, so they tend to fall fall back on their disclosure uh, duties. All right, Greg. Uh, yeah, like you said, 14.3 billion um, is not enough to stabilize that part of the US economy. And thanks for at least giving us your mythology. Like you said, triple B rating range by S&P and look, you looked at schools with debt of 50 million or more. Correct. So 
Let's get to the nitty gritty. What did you find in your report? So in keeping with the low bond ratings of the borrowers that we, that we reviewed, the full-time equivalent or FTE enrollment of most of these borrowers was below 5,000, a level which is one benchmark for separating smaller from larger schools. And we even combined undergraduate and graduate students in that count. The uh, largest number of FTEs we found was at Pace University, which has 11,500 roughly FTE students. And uh, Pace operates two campuses, one in New York City, one in Man Manhattan to be, to be exact, and one to the north of the city in Westchester County. We also found that mortgages on college property for the benefit of bondholders, which often add, uh, which often add an added level of security in the event of bankruptcy or default, are offered by a small number of schools, most of which are rated triple B minus. And a similar trend is noted for debt service reserves. Unfortunately for investors, many of the schools with debt service reserves maintain them only for older series of bonds. So as those bonds are refunded or mature, the reserve funds will go away. Interesting. Greg, uh, I've got uh, one last question for you. What about, let's say, uh, acceptance and matriculation ratios? Yeah, those were also, uh, as you might expect, uh, on the low end. Acceptance ratios for lower-rated schools tended to be less than 50%. Exceptions to this were Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York, Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science, which is in North Chicago, Pacific University, which has four campuses in Oregon, and Howard University in Washington, D.C. The, the first three of those schools focus at least in part on technology or healthcare careers. And Howard is probably the preeminent institution among a group of schools referred to as historically black colleges and universities. And similarly, matriculation ratios for the schools in our sample tended to be low. Only Rosalind Franklin, Pacific, and Yeshiva in Manhattan had matriculation ratios that exceeded 35%. Uh, Yeshiva is unique in that it's the largest college in the U.S. with undergraduate enrollment that's 100% Jewish. Of special concern were 11 schools equal to one-third of our sample that in the last five years, in other words, during an economic expansion, economic expansion still had declining enrollment. And the likelihood of this situation can soon be reversed seems pretty slim, unfortunately, for these schools. So continued financial strength of the schools in our sample depends to varying degrees on regional and national recovery from both the upcoming recession and COVID-19 concerns and ability to maintain enrollment figures and or reduce unnecessary costs and continued attractiveness of any special academic offerings. So niche offerings, excuse me, niche schools such as Howard and Yeshiva might have an advantage over the others. It's hard to say. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, Greg, thank you for your work on the private higher eds and congrats on the big rollout on the ratings tracker. It's doing well. Thanks, John. All right, Greg, stay safe out there, okay? Thank you, you too. All right, bye. bye. And that is our show for today. Thank you to our participants, Chuck Stanley, Washington, D.C., Greg Clark up in upstate New York, and Christian Ayala, our producer, for making us sound good. But as always, thanks to you, our listeners, 
and a lot of you tuning week after week. And as always, in this current situation, let's stay safe, uh, stay nice to each other, and always wash your hands. Uh, but soon we'll be through this. So hopefully, um, hopefully you'll check in with us next week on the latest on distressed mini credits from DebtWire Municipals. Take care, everybody. See you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Mini Lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.